and welcome to episode 33 of the Tech Done Right podcast, TableXI's podcast about building better software, careers, companies, and communities. I'm Noel Rappin. TableXI is now offering training for developer and product teams. Topics include testing, Ruby on Rails, improving your legacy JavaScript, career development, and agile team process. For more information, email us at workshops at tablexi.com. We also have a free email course and tools on improving your company's career growth and goal strategy. You can find that at stickynote.game. And my book, Rails 5 Test Prescriptions, is now shipping. The book is up to date with the latest Rails, RSpec, and mini test features, and has some great non-dogmatic content on how to get value from testing your Rails application. You can buy that at pragprog.com or wherever fine technical books are sold. Today on the show, we're talking about testing again with Justin Searles of the company Test Double and the library testdouble.js, and Sam Fippen, maintainer of RSpec Rails and a senior engineer at DigitalOcean. Sam and Justin and I talked about testing back in episode four of Tech Done Right, and they're here again to talk about value in tests, whether test suite speed matters, and how we might leverage continuous integration data to improve our testing tools. I've been looking forward to this one for a while, and I'm really happy we were able to get it scheduled. So here we are. Sam, you want to tell everybody who you are? Hi, yeah, my name is Sam Fippen. Uh, I'm a technology lead at DigitalOcean on our internal tooling team. Uh, I'm a member of the RSpec core team, uh, and I guess that's one of the reasons I'm here today to talk about testing. And Justin. Hi, I'm, uh, my name is Justin Searles. I'm a co-founder at the software consultancy Test Double. Uh, we do a lot of Ruby, a lot of JavaScript, and a lot of testing. Unlike Sam, I don't have any particular credential that should indicate that I am good at testing, but I sure do seem to talk about it a lot. Yeah, except for the test library you wrote and the mock library you wrote and all the other stuff. Yeah, except for those. But the thing about it is that people actually use RSpec. <laughs> I have it on authority that there's at least one actual testing book that talks about test double. That's true, but that's just because you keep writing testing books. That's also true. So uh, we're, we're here to talk about testing again. Uh, Sam and Justin were on the show almost exactly a year ago to talk about testing, and hopefully we will talk about different things this time. And I wanted to start by talking about an observation that came to me when I gave a talk at RubyConf about the cost and the value of tests and how some of that was developer time and some of that was run time. And what I got in the feedback to that in the room and from people who are coming up to me afterward was that basically... People have very, very long test suites in the Ruby and Rails community, 20 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour or more, who knows. And that unlike a few years ago when it seemed like this was kind of something that you might be a little bit embarrassed about, that people seem to be kind of shruggy about it. Like uh, it doesn't matter. The CI is the only place that the whole test suite ever runs. I'm not concerned about it. And I understand that to a point, but I also feel like there's something a little disquieting about it. And I was wondering how you guys felt about dealing with longer and longer test suites and whether that even is a problem to even worry about these days. So I might jump in uh, and say that in my, in my current thinking, I have moved to air on the side of uh, letting CI do the heavy lifting and running the entire test suite really only there and running any sets of local tests that I'm interested in uh, as I'm doing my development and letting that be a quick cycle and letting CI be a long cycle. I think one of the things that we've gotten to like over the past year or two that really was not the case two, three, four, five years ago is that it's now really, really easy and efficient to parallelize CI builds. And because there's so much convenience there that people have just begun to do it in order to make their builds 
very fast. It will be a default in Rails 6, I believe. Yep. So, Justin, what do you, how do you feel about that? Like, Does that make sense? Well, you know, I'm of two minds because on one hand, if I can write an, an, enti- an entire application with a group of people for a year and a half and have sub 10 second test suite time for the whole application, that feels really good because uh, not only do I have like confidence that I can make broad based changes effectively, but like I can iterate really, really quickly as opposed to like, you know, every now and then if I only run like some segment of tests, the effective feedback loop is, you know, however, I don't know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes for my CI to finish. And then everyone gets an email and then I find out I got to go and fix stuff. And, And that of course is really terrible and you want to avoid it. To Sam's point, like if you have modularized things relatively well and you know what tests you need to run in order to like, you know, cover any particular change, then you can still be reasonably confident. But like for, for whatever reason, like the, the kind of like niggling doubt in the back of my mind is often reason enough for me to go check email or do some other thing while CI is running. And that doesn't seem like the most productive use of my time. But like, I think that the real crux of this issue is that if you have a system that is like reasonably complex and you have a test suite that you can run locally without causing too much pain for yourself, you probably have a really nice clean modular system too, right? And so you probably don't actually like have those problems, but like, whereas if you're in a team or a company with like hours long test suites, you probably also have a team, like a, a system that is super tangled up and it's actually not so modular and not so easy to just carve out only the tests that you care about for whatever you're working on. And so like, oddly enough, right, like the people who most need the fast feedback and running all the tests at once are probably the ones least in the position to have that scenario. <laughs> so I see the two kind of going hand in hand, to be honest. I think it's kind of interesting that we're, we're having discussion because I, I literally have a Rails application parallel CI build scrolling in front of me as we're having this conversation. And like... With this application that I'm working on in particular, it's DigitalOcean's main Rails front-end. I'm like, this application is five years old now. By the time we got to it, the like tech debt and legacy was unfortunately sort of there enough that like there's no possible way that we could make this test suite significantly faster without doing a burn down and complete rewrite. So I think particularly in, in this case where you have like a, a big legacy Rails app and you're feeling that pain, like throwing a parallel CI at it is one of the most effective things you can do to go much faster. Although I will say to Justin's point as well, to sort of concede slightly that we did have just, just one test that failed the first time around that we went. And now we've had to do another full uh, six minute CI build before we get the feedback that it's actually passing. Yeah. I mean, six minutes is fast relative to the things that people were reporting. I mean, I certainly work on applications that have a longer than six minute. Uh, we don't paralyze as aggressively as you do probably. Right. I feel like if you can get the feedback that you need quickly while you're developing, that's fine. I feel like if you concede the idea that the test suite is just as a whole is just going to be really, really long and there's nothing that I can do about it that that leads to not caring about modularization as much and, and writing these bigger, longer integration tests where you can get away with not modularizing it because that individual test is only going to take a few seconds and I'm never going to run the whole suite anyway. So I, I feel like that you're putting a Band-Aid on your, a certain kind of pain by, by just shrugging your shoulders and saying the test suite's going to be really slow. And that's fine. Band-Aids are great. Sometimes you need a Band-Aid. You're getting at some of the points that we actually discussed last time, which is like having a healthy testing pyramid, right. doing good testing 
isolation and those those sorts of things. But in, in particular, like my observation is that it's typically not death by thousands of integration tests that causes like uh, a test suite to become slow, but rather that each individual test is like hitting enough of an active record, enough of your database, enough external API, even if it's not a full integration of your application, that like that's what actually causes an accumulative slowdown. I mean, if you're if you know if you're using fixtures to do a bunch of test setup or like really many of a bunch of other things, you're talking to your, your database perhaps more than you need to to test a new piece of functionality. And sort of in my experience, that's been a place of much testing slowness. I guess my experience, the slowest, te- yeah. I mean, like I was, a, I was a group on the test suite was effectively infinite. When they went in, they went in, basically they, they had a data center move and everybody was blocked from adding new features for like a week. And they had a strike team go in and try and speed up the test suite. And what they fixed mostly was like a bunch of factory objects that were creating a jillion objects every time they were used. Like to me, that's a, a definite source of slowness and like full stack JavaScript testing tends to be really slow. Yes. Uh, so you maybe try not to do that. But yeah, I mean, like, this is actually a point. I, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but this is one of the things that uh, DHH says in his, like, recent on testing software well video is he talks about database tests and integration tests being relatively fast and, and being fast enough for most purposes. And uh, he says fast enough for all purposes. You know, it, it's sort of true until it's not, I guess. Like, Justin, what do you, like, what, what causes people to get into this kind of trouble? I feel like there is a certain nihilism that's set in with a lot of teams where they get used to their builds being slow. And so they just assume that's like a fact of life, uh, something to deal with. And the only issue that I have with that is like, as I've gotten older and gotten more experience, I realize that humans are, have a tremendous capacity to acclimate to pain. But the problem with organizations that experience some kind of pain and then acclimate to it is that there's like a meta acclimatization that occurs where you acclimate to acclimating to pain. That is the entire development history. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And so you systemically almost morph into this mode where you're always treating symptoms and never looking at root causes because as all the open source that we stand on and all the tools that we use become like increasingly irreducibly complex. We just feel like, well, the best we can do is just slap a bandaid on it or find some other, you know, piece of mud to sling onto the ball to make it slightly less painful. And this to me seems endemic of that where unless what you're building is like, you know, so incredibly complex that you could never hope to, to, you know, build and test it in a reasonable amount of time, then it's almost certainly going to be, you know, like at any point, like if you were to like throw an error anywhere in your application, like if, if, if the stack trace is like 99 things that you don't own and one or two methods that you do own, then you should really be thinking about like how much of your tests are actually just exercising other people's code. And Factory Bot, to your point, Noel, is a great example. I've seen so many like really long running Rails integration tests that spend 80, 90% of their time uh, just in test setup, just running through really, really obtuse factories, dumping stuff, the same stuff into the database over and over again. The slightly heretical thing I do on integration tests is actually use stock Rails fixtures, which are really, really fast relative to big factory bot creations. I also use stock Rails test fixtures. I gave up on factory bot years ago. Oh, I, I use factory bot for small things and I use Rails fixtures for larger things. I don't have room for two things. <laughs> Yeah, I'm like pretty okay with the Rails fixtures. I've always found them to be a little bit fragile, where like 
the, the data in fixtures.yaml or whatever it is, like it no longer passes your validations or whatever. And I know there are techniques to make sure that doesn't happen. But like, I generally also agree if test speed is a problem, fixtures are a really good solution. The, where, where I've gotten into trouble with it is where you do stuff that is like based on the, the entire group, set of fixtures, like on the all group of fixtures. Right. And then somebody like adds one and 14 tests break. Yeah. That's an avoidable problem too, I think. And then actually kind of get away from that from when I, that was more when I used to use them for like regular unit tests rather than for integration tests. I'd like to pose a potentially tricky question, if I may, which is that like, if you, even if you had a fast test suite for your application, would you still go to the effort of parallelizing it in the CI? Well, yeah, I can answer that because I just did it. So I, <laughs> uh, uh, I, I, for my library testable JS, it's a relatively slow build for a JavaScript library because we go to a tremendous effort using tools like don't break, uh, which will actually like load up your dependence uh, and then run their test suite against your, you know, uh, whatever your Git ref is to sure. make sure that you didn't just break them. Uh, we also have like six or seven example apps that we like include as part of like the repo and we run through all those. And so like all told, it takes, I think about a minute 30 on my machine to run the full build. And it takes about three minutes on Travis or about two minutes on CircleCI. But, you know, a lot of these things like running through the linter and running through these example apps are easily parallelizable. Right. So we were able to kind of like whittle it down. I got some help from um, Zach, Zach Scott. Uh, at Circle CI to to get us down to about like a, a minute or so, and that's running in you know Node four, Node six, and Node eight. Sure. So so I was pretty happy with that because like same same problem, right? Like if I merge in uh, something or I push something up, uh, if I can see it in a minute, I'm going to actually sit there and watch it. But if it's going to take three minutes, I'm going to tab away, and twenty minutes will pass. I feel like there are certain like order of magnitude jumps. There's the like amount of time that I can look and it doesn't break focus, so that's like a second or two. The amount of time where it kind of breaks focus, but I will stay more or less on task, which is like a minute or two. Um, there's like the time where I can get up and go get a, a something to drink and come back. Uh, and then there's like the time frame where I would go and have lunch. And, and then it's like overnight. And I feel like it's not worth it to parallelize to make a fine distinction between one of those and another, but it would probably be worth it to make a distinct, to like drop down. And like, if I, if it took me from, if parallelization took me from the amount of time it takes to get a drink to, I can still watch this go and not feel like I'm wasting my time. That's worth it. So, you know, those are both relatively fast and I think it's still probably worth it. I, I, I feel like getting, going from like a minute to 45 seconds wouldn't really, but going from a minute and a half to half a minute might. Yeah, I think I think that's a, a very reasonable approach. Um, to, to maybe slightly steer the conversation, uh, Justin just touched upon something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, which is like, what what does it mean for your library to still be functional? So, like, Justin, you said that your test level is testing against like a bunch of example apps, but also a bunch of dependents. If I may, I'd like to steer the conversation in that direction because it's it's been relevant to a bunch of my thinking recently. Go ahead. So like on, on RSpec for a long time, we've tested all the permutations of the RSpec gems against all the other permutations of the RSpec gems masters. But also more recently, we've begun to introduce essentially every Rails version we support. We now CI against RSpec. And that is now every version Rails 3.0 and up all the way through 5.2 and all the Ruby versions that all of those support. 
And so like our matrix has gotten very, very big, but like more generally, I'm like very interested also in this idea, like should the Ruby interpreter CI against Bundler and Rails and RSpec before they do a release? Should Rails CI again, you know, sort of beginning to define what the ecosystem is by the libraries and usage in it rather than necessarily something more like Ruby spec, which is like trying to define what Ruby is from a like very artificial specification point of view. And like, I'd love to hear both of your thoughts on like that sort of grander idea. Maybe to, to riff on this just a little bit, Sam, and try to get it to a place where folks who maintain like applications with, you know, multiple services and stuff can relate a little bit more than uh, just like OSS people with really, really complex OSS libs. Cause like, Obviously, RSpec is like radically unlike most people's day to day, just in, in sort of like the the nature of how it gets used and consumed by people, and the and the support matrix is almost unparalleled. But a related problem that is really common to folks, including folks like you guys at DigitalOcean, is having lots and lots of services internally that all you know run relatively independently or maintain relatively independently. They talk over HTTP and they have you know varying levels of formality to the contracts between themselves and and who consumes them. Mm-hmm. There's been a thing I've been pushing for years called contract tests where uh, you know if somebody is using my thing and it's an, an at all a strange use case like encourage them to write a test that is like tagged as a thing that they own inside of my repo to run alongside my suite. Sure. Like the recent sophistication of some of these uh, CI tools and, and tools like don't break and similar, it would be really interesting, I think, to get in the habit of knowing who consumes you uh, as a service in an organization and just have them run all of your stuff against your head. Can you explain quickly what don't break does for people who might not be familiar with it? Well, okay, so Don't Break is an NPM module, um, and it's not like, I don't mean to be selling it as like a big deal or like the most robust thing on the planet. I've had, I've definitely had some problems with it, but it seems to do this job for, for what I want fairly well, which is like, hey, every time that I run this command, I would like you to go clone this repo into a, uh, you know, a temp folder somewhere install depths and then do the necessary sim linking to like point to my working copy of this library upon which that project depends and then run through its test script and make sure that uh, everything exits cleanly. And so just, you know, the, the, the goal being, of course, with this technique or, you know, any sort of custom script you might write to do the same thing is like you want as early a notification as possible that you broke somebody else. Because like if you find out a month later or after you go into production, it might be like really acrimonious. <laughs> it's a lot easier to, to fix these things early. So we've actually come up with a very similar solution internally. Uh, so at solution, we program a lot of Go. All of our Go lives in a single ginormous repository, also known as a monorepo. And anytime you push a change, uh, the CI for the monorepo actually will statically analyze who depends on you and then like all of the libraries that recursively depend on them and so on and so on and so on ad infinitum and run all of the tests uh, for all of the systems that are rel- relevant to anything that you've changed. So like this ensures that if you're making a change, not only you haven't broken any of your dependencies, but you haven't broken any of their dependencies and so on and so on. And so like, this is one of the ways that we've actually been able to scale our sort of service-based architecture is like, I can write a change pretty fearlessly. Uh, and like, as long as all of the, everyone's tests pass and like, it's on me to fix them if they don't, uh, like I can merge and then deploy with confidence that everyone's still going to be happy in production. I approve of this. 
This is interesting to me, part because it seems like we're we're sort of widening the scope of what we're talking about. We're not we're not just talking about the health of my individual application or the health the health of my code that I'm writing right now in a, a TDD kind of way. We're, we're talking about the health of an, an entire ecosystem or mini ecosystem and how it actually works together in practice or doesn't work together in practice. Um, and it seems like this is you know only going to get more important as we get more polyglot and have more interaction between these systems that this kind of validation seems like it's something that, that more people should spend time thinking about, I guess. I, I agree. And my perspective on that has been shifted a fair bit by switching sort of from working in mostly sort of N less than 50 engineer startups to coming to a much larger organization with close to 200 engineers where like, I don't necessarily even know all of the systems that exist in our production environment and who owns them, right? To me, it's been very interesting to shift perspectives to having to be able to work in a way where I like literally cannot communicate with all of the people who consume software I write and vice versa, all of the people who consume my software can't really communicate with me. Right. I haven't had as much experience with that, certainly not recently. And and so this is a whole other level that I don't ever deal with on a day-to-day basis, which is exciting and terrifying. So Justin, what kind of bugs do you find in the don't break this kind of testing that you weren't finding before? Like, does it actually seem to be worth the effort that you're putting into it? The effort in the in the getting the CI set up is relatively minimal if it's going to be a long-running project, but the effort to keep things running as various dependencies break and to uh, just, you know, kind of forfeit some amount of feedback time to know that everything's working, that that's not nothing. Yeah, do you get a lot of false positives? Well, I think it just depends on like the nature of the usage because every organization is different, right? Like there's move fast and break things organizations where like everyone's breaking things all the time for everyone else. And then there's ones where it's like, the protocol or the contract between two services is like literally generated and like enforced uh, through some, you know, intermediary mechanism. And in those cases, like if you're able to like prove the contract (laughs) with a white paper, like a (laughs) test that redundantly runs all these examples might not be telling you very much. And so I, I would, I would encourage people to like, don't fix things that, you know, aren't broken. So if this has never been a problem, it doesn't make sense. But if you have run into inconsistencies or late discovered breaks from one service, depending on another, uh, it might be worth giving a try. Sure. Uh, If I might just uh, riff off that slightly, a couple of things we've implemented here that have really helped with that. So one is uh, we use gRPC internally, which uses protocol buffers as the underlying communication mechanism, which basically is a fancy way of saying the messages that your service sends and receives are like statically typed and like clients consume a static definition of the messages coming in and out uh, before they attach, which means that if your client compiles, you know you're going to be able to send a well-formed message back and forth. Um, And then we combine that with uh, in-production canary testing, which is basically a sort of like full end-to-end exercise of DigitalOcean stack, uh, web browser, and API and then like watching changes occur on the back end, propagate through many teams. And if something breaks, we get a quick and early notification that something went out to production that was bad. Um, and that kind of testing has been very effective for us at identifying usually infrastructure level faults as opposed to service or application level faults. 
Well, I think we solved this. <laughs> Great. Cool. Next problem. <laughs> Inferring which tests to run from a production code diff. Go. Yeah, I think this is super interesting. <laughs> several people have experimented with this separately. I had a client um, several years ago with such a long test suite that I literally had just, you know, I was waiting six minutes between every single individual test run anyway. So I had, <laughs> I, I don't know why you're laughing. <laughs> it was using your tool. It was using our spec. So it must've been our spec. <laughs> must be my fault. Yep. So in that time, I started kind of goofing around with writing custom hooks around Ruby's uh, coverage module to try to figure out, you know, like what was actually covered by each and every individual test. And then like caching that out to like a local storage so that I could have like a better understanding of the inverse. So like looking at a production diff, understanding like what tests knowingly cover that, that bit of code. And uh, I got, you know, 70% of the way there. Unfortunately, there were some problems with like how coverage worked at the time, but I think Aaron has since patched those where you couldn't like actually start a call to coverage multiple times inside the same process. But I think he's fixed that at least in Trunk Ruby. So I think like there's something there where in Ruby in particular, you could totally use coverage in the small metrics to figure out which tests should run for any given diff and then only run those maybe as the first, you know, even if all you do is sort them to the top of the build, it seems like you'd get faster feedback if those were the runs to run first. Oh, that's an interesting and compelling variant of the idea for sure. Like run only the tests that are most likely to break given this diff. I like that quite a lot as a concept, actually. Like the way I've seen it done in the past is like, uh, as I'm developing locally, again, sort of coming back to speed of development, it's like, please only run the tests that I'm interested in running right now. Computer, work it out for me, right? But I really like this idea of running those tests first in CI. That's like quite a cool trick. Well, it seems like like there are a couple of tools, at least on a local development level, that have tried to do this. Like Guard tries to set up a way to do this, where you, you give Guard effectively a set of heuristics for what files get touched by what tests and when a test file, when, when something changes, it triggers a bunch of test fixes. And it seems to me like a long time ago that there was a core rails tool that did this for like files that were open in your source control, but I don't remember ever actually using it. It seems to me like you don't have to actually have perfect fidelity. Like it, 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 you can err on the side of being a little bit conservative and have this still be pretty helpful. Well, you kind of want the maximal set of, of, of tests, right? So it's like, anything that could possibly be affected by your diff as opposed to like the inverse, which is only things that you're absolutely certain are affected by your diff. If you're even a little bit unsure, then you want to run it. In most cases, you'd still be fine. Like you'd still be running, you'd be running 8% of the test instead of 6% of the test or something like that. And that's not going to be a big deal. Now I should say like, even given that, like, I don't normally run guard locally, even though it would probably speed up no. my feedback loop. And I, I, I did at one point run one of those things on a day-to-day -day basis and eventually stopped and have never really felt pressure to go back. I have found much more value in being able to dispatch a like very specific set of tests I have selected at the flick of a wrist with a keystroke rather than like having something running in the background all the time. Also, like I'm sure this is fixed now, but God used to have really serious issues with like classes not getting reevaluated or stuff getting leaked as 
you are leaving it running in the background, right? And I've always been a little bit burned by that and not super willing to go back. I, I think that was the reason why I finally stopped because guard would just keep failing the same test over and over again. It would, the, the output would be really right. hard to deal with. One, I, but what I have done is what I have done is kind of like the, the cheap version of that. And what I've been doing increasingly over the last year or two is increasingly using like RSpec focus mm-hmm. to specify the things that I'm working on and just run that. And I, I have gotten a lot of value on a, out of the RSpec only failure and next failure. Yeah, features that is that is uh, certainly so, one of my favorites too. Yeah, so what you can do in our spec is specify a, a, an output file, and it keeps a track of the most recent status of the runtime of an individual test. Then what you can do is have it run just the things that are currently in a failing state, or just the things that are in a failing state and fail the, the you know and stop at the uh, first continued failure, and. That's actually a pretty good way to focus uh, to focus tests, especially if you're doing something like a refactoring. Uh, I'm currently in the middle of, of moving a code base from authorized to Stripe, which is breaking a bunch of tests, and I'm using the, both of those features pretty strongly to keep from having to run the whole suite over and over again. Although, actually, an interesting question there is, did you have to run the entire suite the first time around? And if you did so, does that mean we're back to the problem of having to run the whole suite on your laptop? I did, but in this case, the whole suite is like the whole suite on my laptop is like it's go get a drink level of time. Okay, it's not terrible to have to do that like once to get at the small percentage of tests that are failing. Yeah. All right, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna throw another twist in here, which is sometimes like so. So coverage is uh, an interesting idea for playing with this problem, but it's not perfect. Like for example, if I write a hello world test that just like loads one Rails model it's going to give me probably like 47 to 60% coverage of the entire application, right? Because just how much Ruby code gets executed by first the Rails autoloader and then like at the class level as opposed to inside of all the methods. Okay. And so if you just like do a file filter on that, you're going to end up running all your stupid tests again, uh, like all the time. Somebody needs to step in and do like all that hard work and figuring out, you know, what coverage really means uh, on a deeper level. But one thing that I think is interesting as well is the lack of feedback that you get from tests that never <laughs> fail. So if you're an organization that runs, you know, 500 cucumber tests or something like that, and they're all really slow, and maybe there's 10 of them that have become team-wide famous because they're always breaking whenever anyone changes anything. Uh, there's probably, you know, like 200 of them that you've never thought about since they were initially written and have never changed, like they're, the features they cover have never changed. They never break. And so like for those ones, I'm kind of interested in having sort of an exponential back off algorithm programmed into my, you know, uh, test runner to say, uh, just using historical data to be like, well, this test has never like failed in the last thousand runs. So we should just like, you know, only run it every now and then. That would be interesting. One thing that I was saying as you were listing that is you probably also have like 10 or so tests that um, just will never fail because they are malwritten. Yeah. And and will never fail because they depend on a stub that doesn't right. exist anymore or right. because they're somehow become tautological over time. Having data from the CI server about when the last time this individual test failed would actually be kind of interesting. The the list of tests that has have never failed in the system would be an interesting artifact, I think. If the test is never failing, there's an open question as to whether it's providing ongoing providing value to run every time through the suite. There's a sort of really interesting meta thread to the discussion that we've had today, which 
just just maybe to pull out slightly is that like in the before times, right, testing frameworks were built to be run on your computer, on your laptop to test your application. And now like everyone has continuous integration. Like the entire industry has leveled up to a maturity level where everyone is running their tests on a CI system of some kind. And like our test frameworks on as of today, all all that continuous integration aware, right? I mean, our spec has basically no awareness of any of the CI systems on which it runs. And like, I do wonder if there's an interesting idea in like thinking about building testing frameworks as like being CI aware, because inevitably that's where they're going to spend more of their time running than on any human's computer. And I think the first step for that is that these tools should be able to log out test results in a way that can be like a historical time series. Uh, so you have some sort of track record for each and every test uh, over time, obviously being able to accommodate for the, the addition and removal and changing of tests over time. But like for step one is track that data and almost no tools actually do that. Our spec's pretty close to that. Is it though? Well, it's pretty close to it. I don't know that I agree with that statement at all. Uh, our specs example out, the thing that he uses to build the only fail- failure could be the base of that if you were storing it snapshots of it over time. You obviously would have trouble with it's designed to be slightly robust against changes in the test in the spec file, uh, but it's obviously it's not fully robust against it. So you you know it would need some work and you would need some mechanism for storing snapshots of it. But it could be the basis of it. And I mean the same the same thing could be true for bisection output. I mean RSpec doesn't actually parallelize by default, right? You have to use test queue or parallel RSpec or something else to parallelize. Like there's other thing artifacts that it produces as well, coverage, you know, those kinds of things. But like RSpec as a test framework has almost no like CI amenability for any of those things as of right now. So what kinds of, this is something I actually really haven't thought about it, but I I probably will be thinking about it now. Like what kinds of things would you expect, kind of features would you expect out of a testing suite that was CI aware? I mean, parallelization, I think is one we've discussed to death at this point. I'm really interested in Justin's run the tests that are most likely to fail first idea. And that's something that you could do all sorts of statistics from past runs on in your CI runner, right? I really like this idea of if a test hasn't failed in a thousand runs, suggest deleting it or suggest a human tries to break it, right? Like those sorts of things. And like just getting a little bit smarter and more aware about our tests over time. I guess duration over time is probably a big one. We could do complexity analysis, right? We could go on and on and on and on. Justin, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, Sam, you you hit on a lot of them. We got to walk before we can run here and even just getting, you know, a data format that was amenable to the sort of statistical analysis that you're describing is step one. But even beyond that, when I think about this, I think it'd be really cool to like take build duration, for example. So right now we have, we can see build duration on most of our tools and some of the more sophisticated tools, CI tools, we can see build duration over time, and then we can all get depressed as it kind of infinitely goes up, <laughs> uh, sometimes super linearly. But like even getting like individual tests and how they've gotten slower over time, like one thing that we often don't think about when our build duration goes up is that it's not just the addition of new tests making things slower, but like the very first test that we ever wrote was probably fast the day that we wrote it. And now it is slow too, because the system under test is itself bigger and slower. 
And so it would be interesting to me to uh, see the trajectory of the whole build, individual tests, and then even to like, especially because I am thinking about Ruby primarily today, because Ruby is cool, like it would be cool to get an analysis of showing like where that time went, was spent in each of these test runs over sure. time. So like you could even profile the stack essentially. Now like that would take some amount of time, but if you had like a slow running uh, a CI built in. But nobody cares how long their test suite is on CI anyway. So if it takes a little bit slower because we're profiling. I don't know that that's true either. Like if my CI build takes more than about 10, 10 15 minutes, I get very nervous. And that's why I said like maybe this is some long running batch process, right. but it would be really interesting regardless. It'd be like, hey, yo, you depend on this dependency. It used to be fast. You upgraded it. Now it's super slow. And so like your whole test build is slow because you upgraded you know, yada, yada, gem from, from, from two to three. Right. I would be interested just in seeing something like the code climate churn versus complexity graph for like test failures versus, I don't know what the other axis would be, but test failures against speed of test would be interesting. Sure. I really think like how old is this test versus how long does it take to execute is like a really interesting one. So like, what if you, observe that like your older tests are getting slower over time, right? To speak to one of the metrics Justin had, that idea fascinates me. Yeah. I, I think that the value, like I'm, I'm kind of, I'm very curious to see what this would show to see like how often the test fails versus how slow it is. Cause in some ways that's a, almost a value measurement. It could be construed as a value measurement in any way. Um, yeah. At least certainly a flawed one, but, but it's in that direction. And I think there's a lot of interesting kind of, yeah, to start off with sort of gathering the data and then and then maybe figuring out what we what you can do with it. That's kind of neat. Yeah, you know, and and uh, you, I don't want to gloss over this idea that having this data about like frequent or erratic test failures, like that's not something to take lightly, right? Like teams are often uh haunted by erratic tests that fail uh at seemingly random times or just entirely erratically or depending on order. And other than like investigating any one particular test run where this happened, there aren't a lot of tools out there for helping them unwind that. But having time series data of like all of our builds ever, you know, you could imagine actually like running through some kind of analysis that might be like, hey, just like, here's an insight. Like this one test always fails on like the last day of the month. Maybe you're doing some like, you know, day plus one thing in your test data um having a month rollover right you could have your ci system run your test suite like so justin speaking to your idea of like a background batch process right it could happily be like whilst i'm not waiting for somebody to build i'm going to run your test suite in every time zone on the planet and see what happens i love i love all of this so i think we've just been bad yeah that i was gonna say that's actually a mutation test role that Uh-huh. They, well, while I'm waiting for so, while I'm waiting for somebody to te- to test, I start running mutation tests, and when I find a, a mutation test failure, I alert you. Yeah, so I think we've just invented Silicon Valley's next hot CI startup. Uh, I'll be going to pitch for all the VC in the world. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Well, and so, so just right as like circle CI and Travis get really good at like container based CI runs that only run when you've pushed stuff, we've now like made a case for running your own server so that you can keep it busy the other 20 hours a day. Wonderful. Yes. And we actually are coming up against a time limit, I think. So do you guys have one other thing you want to say? Something you've changed your mind about in the last year or something you've done more in the last year than you've done before? Yes. So, so I will say this, working primarily in a programming language that has a admittedly weak, but like 
pretty okay static type system, so I've been programming a lot of Go, has like materially affected my thoughts about like how much to test and what to test when you have that available to you. Basically, less and like more carefully for things that are only really dynamic and less things around the edges. I have played a little bit with TypeScript and Elm over the last year and have had somewhat of a similar experience. It, it does change the way that I've... If the type system's well-structured, then there's a bunch of things that you previously were testing about that are just impossible. Right. And then you need to focus on the things that are, could still go wrong. Yep. I've been writing a lot of JavaScript, so I still test 100% <laughs> my code. <laughs> I, I, I have Wonderful. not actually been able to squeak much of the... I got a little bit of the TypeScript into a production app, but I haven't gotten Elm into a production app yet, so I don't, I don't have much of a practice there yet. Cool. All right. Thank you, guys. I always like getting a chance to talk to you guys, and I hope we can do this again soon. Thanks for being on the show, guys. Tech Done Right is a production of TableXI and is hosted by me, Noel Rappin. I'm at Noel Rapp on Twitter, and TableXI is at TableXI. The podcast is edited by Mandy Moore. You can reach her on Twitter at the Ruby Rep. Tech Done Right can be found at techdonright.io or downloaded wherever you get your podcasts. You can send us feedback or ideas on Twitter at tech underscore done underscore right. TableXI is a UX design and software development company in Chicago with a 15-year history of building websites, mobile applications, and custom digital experiences for everyone from startups to storied brands. Find us at TableXI.com where you can learn more about working with us or working for us. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next episode of Tech Done Right. <laughs>